Well, good morning. I'm Bruce. It's good to have you either watching at home. Uh, please grab your Bible and gather around the screen or uh, those of you that are here in person. Thank you. Glad you're here. Uh, I want to say a big thank you. Uh, many of you prayed for me recovering from mono. I take it as proof that I'm still young. Um, uh, and uh, not contagious, so that's why I'm here, um, able to be here, grateful. And many of you prayed for my wife. Back surgery was Wednesday, and she's doing well. She's not here this morning, uh, watched at home, but will be back by next week and is doing great. And we really appreciate your prayers and thoughtfulness and the love that's been expressed to us so many different ways. We're grateful. Um, I want to say this morning, if and when I say something that's offensive to you and gets you upset, please respond biblically and with grace, because it might happen this morning. Um, who will rule? We're going to dive right in. I'm going to give you my summary of what some of the Christian leaders I most respect have been writing in recent days. John Piper, he says he won't vote for either candidate because bad character on one side defined by arrogance, brashness, and incivility, and bad policy on the other side are both equally disqualifying for public leadership. That's John Piper. Wayne Grudem, theologian out in Arizona, he's written lots of things. He's uh, well-known. He and John Piper are friends. He wrote, wrote first to Piper, then released his uh, declaration that while he respects Piper's stance, he disagrees with his conclusion. Grudem says he's voting Trump based on policy and the issue of religious freedom. Al Mohler, theologian and historian down in Louisville, Kentucky, he explained in a long letter this week why he refused to vote for Trump in 2016 on the grounds of character and past sins. And then explained why he is voting for him in 2020. Why the change? He says it's due to the super-fast pace of moral decay, the anti-life and anti-biblical policies on the other side, and the pro-Israel and, in his opinion, surprising level at which Trump actually followed through on campaign promises. He has landed on policy mattering more than personality. Dr. Randy Smith was here two months ago. He helped kick off our study of the book of the, uh, book of the Revelation. How timely was that for us? What a great series that was. Um, he said something that bears repeating today. He said, I hear a lot of Christians bemoaning uh, that uh, the election feels like lesser of two evils. This was back in 2016. And now, uh, again, said, unless Jesus is running, it's always the lesser of two evils. Another pastor discussing the kind of person we would love to have lead our nation said, wouldn't it be wonderful to have both righteous policies and procedures and a righteous personality? said, that's called the millennial kingdom and Jesus. It's coming. Wait for it. We just finished studying about it. Pastor Steve Byers down in Lafayette six months ago. A lot of folks were fretting, uh, reading stuff, uh, posting things, all upset about what was to come and what was going on in our nation. Six months ago, he said, too many of you are fretting, anxious, angry. He didn't say chill, but that's what he meant. He said, I'm going to tell you right now who's going to win the election. 
Whoever God and his sovereignty decides to put in that place of authority. Whoever he places there for his eternal purposes and agenda. And his point wasn't to be trite. His point was to say, would you please take a deep breath and stop with the anxiety. God is on his throne. Now, I want to hit the pause button on man's judgments. Even great men who love God's word like we do, I want to back up the bus and set our priorities in order first. How much of what you've heard, read, watched, listened to in recent months could be called uh, anything that coming from close to a biblical perspective? Not much, right? But we have his word. And we're going to look at a couple of passages this morning and refer to a couple of others as well to try and address getting things in the proper perspective biblically. So many are anxious and angry. Given the nature of this election cycle, the grossly divergent party platforms, the polarization in our nation, it makes perfect sense to be angry, worried, and nervous. It's an appropriate response for non-Christians. But not for those who know God, know what the Bible says, and know his agenda for mankind. So today, I want to get some shepherding, some direction on thinking and engaging biblically. If you know and love God and his word, you can rest. Stop worrying. First things first. That's the first point on your outline. First things first, this is the gospel and our mission. Our calling is the gospel, the good news of forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. He went to the cross. Kip mentioned the new things. Did you, you've noticed, I assume, our new cross. So now when the screen's down, there's still a cross there. What he did in paying the price for my sins and your sins, the good news that forgiveness is available. We turn to him. We, we, become part of his family, and we are eternally secure, looking forward to eternity and living for him right now. The good news of the gospel is our first calling, first things first. And so we say we're gonna, our mission is always greater than our political convictions. Our mission has to win over our political convictions. We are blessed, incredibly blessed, to be American citizens. We have a dual citizenship. I tell you, all it took me was the first couple of days in Cuba. Cuba is a beautiful place. Amazing people. Our brothers and sisters in Christ down there are incredible people. I wish you all could meet them. But there's a reason the boats go from there to here and not the other way. We are blessed beyond what most of the world can wrap their minds around. Blessed here, that's one citizenship. But our greater citizenship is in heaven, Philippians. And so we need to think with both as both kinds of citizens. We need to vote as citizens of both. And we need to react Tuesday or whenever we know what the results of the elections are. React as citizens of both. I love uh, what... Paul David Tripp wrote, this came out, uh, I like it because it came out 20 months ago. It's before all the, the furor of the last year and a half. He said, the hope of the people of God is never in political power. Our greatest power is not political. The minute you believe that your greatest power is political, is political influence, you will compromise the gospel. 
The gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to do what politics could never, ever do. And that is to rescue and transform the heart of a person. Any amens? Amen. He is right on target. So we remind ourselves, first things first, we're about the gospel. We have a mission, an assignment from God. Kip said uh, last week, we get so enamored, distracted, and concerned by this world that we miss the hope of what is to come. We are to be the people of hope. Dr. Smith said, when believers lose sight of heaven, they lose hope on earth. First things first. Dr. Tony Evans says that the hope of the world is the gospel. So if you don't know Jesus yet, if, if you're on the fence and haven't decided, can I commit to this book? Can I commit to living for God? Am I going to let him have the authority in my life? The hope of the world, the hope of this nation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is such freedom and joy that comes in the forgiveness that he offers. I beg you, trust him. Get off the fence. Choose to follow. I like what Dr. Evans says. The king is not coming to reign on a donkey nor an elephant. And he says, he's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. Amen. And we just finished learning that in the book of Revelation. So, first things first. Okay, then what? Identify the opposition. That's my second point. Identify the opposition. And it is not the other color. It is not the other side of the political aisle. Identify the opposition. It is Satan. Who is the father of lies? Who is the one that wants to steal, kill, and destroy? Who is the one that wants to make the house divided and tear it down? The one who plunders. Who is the squatter? It's Satan, and he has an agenda. So Ephesians chapter 2 describes him. His title is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He has an agenda, and we can see it all around us. In Ephesians 2, Paul is glorying and he's reminding the people there that we were all stuck under his authority and control. He was in charge of all of us. We were all stuck in our sins, our transgressions. We were all among those who are disobedient and deserved wrath until the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ came and rescued us out of what we deserved, rescued us out of the wrath. We no longer have to be under the control of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So let me give you a, a couple of examples. Where's the discussion of morality gone? How many times have you heard the word moral or immoral in this election cycle? Yeah, you're laughing. Uh, precious few, maybe zero times. Why is that? See, when you can't label an idea or a belief right or wrong because that's intolerant, then all you're left with is to discuss personalities. Whose agenda do you think that might be? Uh, listen to a podcast. It was great talking about what God is doing all around the world. It was discussing postmodernism in the West. That's us. Kind of the post-Christian, the way of thinking that there's no absolute truth. Postmodernism in the West is in a real spot because it wants Christian behavior. It wants 
the Christian ethic without Christianity. Treat people a certain way. You should be a certain kind of people. You should be moral virtuous. On what basis? We certainly don't want to listen to God and what he has to say. So there's a dilemma there. Whose agenda might that be? Tony Evans says, the further God is removed from a life, a family, a culture, the more chaotic these entities become. Do not extract God. I'm told in the New Testament, uh, encouraged, the Corinthians are encouraged, don't be ignorant of his schemes. He has an agenda. Are we ignorant of his schemes? Here's another example. The primary theory driving the current narrative in our country about race and poverty is a philosophy that, as one Christian thinker said, does not allow for repentance, does not allow for forgiveness, and therefore there is no hope of any change. Whose agenda did you think that might be? Identify the opposition. Ephesians 6 says, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, other humans, our struggles against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So someone reminded us this week with this meme, you probably saw it on Facebook, Kamala is beloved, Donald is fearfully and wonderfully made, Mike is cherished, Joe is important enough that Jesus died for him. Who's the real opposition, the real enemy? There's no question there is a clash of worldviews. Both parties have been saying, this is, a, this is a, an election that deter, is based on what kind of world you want. Clash of worldviews, yep. But we have to think spiritually about clash of worldviews. The one without God and the one that counts in God and Satan as our enemy. One uh, pastor, some wish I'd do this here. Maybe you're one of them. Uh, one pastor uh, recently put up uh, quotes from the two party platforms. And he didn't ask people, to, he didn't identify which one was red, which one was blue. He didn't ask people that. He said, uh, which one is closer to your biblical convictions? See, he's trying to get people to think biblically about, uh, wait a minute, uh, there's something more at work here than just two political parties. Identify the opposition. So I encourage you, read the platforms. Think spiritually about them. There are at least five issues. I made a list of five. You want to know what it is? Ask me afterwards. You can come up with your list. Five issues that fit in a spiritual, a, a biblical worldview that have never been mentioned in the debates and the interviews and the articles. Hmm. Whose agenda might that be? to leave them out. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and self-controlled. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Identify the opposition. And then we've got to adjust our attitudes. I, I put it on the outline as guard your soul. Guard your soul. What is wrong with us? I've been asking that for a number of months. Uh, as a nation, as a people, what is wrong with us? And I think there was an interview that Dr. Dobson did back in August, and I think the guy hit it on the head. Uh, here's what he said. We have right now at work 
in our nation in a variety of settings. He wasn't talking politically. He was actually talking more about educational settings in our nation than he was about anything political. But he said, we have a very dangerous triad of bitterness, resentfulness, and arrogance. That's the American people now. You can listen to it this week and think COVID was an American issue. Our arrogance. That's what we've become. The further, Tony said it, the further you, you extract God out of the picture, what you're left with is more and more chaos. What are we to be as people who have understood God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ? Who are we to be? The exact opposite of every one of these. Instead of bitterness, forgiveness. Instead of resentfulness, gratitude. Instead of arrogance, humility. And the world, our nation, has never needed more people who are willing to live on the basis of forgiveness, gratitude, and humility. That's us. What an opportunity for us and for the gospel in this day when our our culture, our nation's being swept away with those three. What's the answer? We have it. Now, I've had to guard my heart. I've had to do attitude adjustments, and I bet you have too. The wise follower of Jesus will guard his or her soul. When the rhetoric, the commercials, the attacks, the claims, the counterclaims, when they're becoming toxic to your soul, step away. Step away. Now, 11 months ago, we did this series on outrage, and there was a week that was dealing with political outrage, and I'm going to hit the refresh button on a few ideas because of all the anger that's present, and I'm sure it will be this week and beyond. What's anger in the first place? It's a moral judgment. This matters, and it's wrong. It matters, and it's wrong. Where does the anger come from? Inside demandingness. When it comes to political anger and disgust and outrage, for me, once in a while, it comes out of, I'm concerned for someone else, what they're having to suffer through and experience, and uh, that makes me angry. But most of the time, it's my own demandingness. Somebody out there is making it more uncomfortable for me to live the way I want to live with my morals, with my biblical convictions, and how dare they make it tougher for me. Demandingness. It's where most of our anger comes from. Political outrage erupts when my morals, my culture, my comfort are threatened by those with whom I disagree. And the tragedy is that when I go to the spot of anger, I've now undercut, undermined the very mission for which I am called to be here. So we have to put away the anger. It's hard to do on our own, but the work of the Holy Spirit in us is self-control, peace, love, joy. When we demand that India or Washington protect and support our biblical morals and our biblical worldview, we're setting ourselves up for outrage. The rulers in the first century didn't support it. The rulers now don't support it. And the Bible makes clear in the future a biblical worldview and biblical convictions aren't going to be supported then either. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 13 with me because we need to do a refresh on the most blunt and most relevant passion, passage in the New Testament dealing with who will rule and what's our attitude. 
Romans chapter 13. It uh, starts out, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Submit yourself. Yield. Uh, respect. Uh, and Kevin Mary said, we're to pray for them. We respect and pray for them. Why? End of the verse. For there is no authority except that which God has established. That was true then, Claudius to Nero to Vespasian. It's true now, from Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump. They're put there, established by God. Why are we to yield to them? Why are we to submit? Why are we to pray? Because verse 2, consequently, he who rebels against the authorities, rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. The rotten attitude toward the leader, and this isn't just civic authority, the rotten attitude toward the coach, toward the teacher, toward the boss, we're bringing judgment on ourselves. They've been put there by God. We've been put under them by God. Third reason to submit is in verses 4 and 6. Verse 4, for he is God's servant to do good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Verse 6 again, for the authorities are God's servant. Wait a minute, we elected them. I thought they were supposed to serve us. See, spiritual worldview, they're put there by God. They are his servants. Here's how Tony Evans describes the role of government, the biblical role of government. Reward good, punish evil, according to Romans 13. He says that the biblical role of civil government is to maintain a safe, just, righteous, and compassionately responsible environment for freedom to flourish. Safe, just, righteous, and compassionately responsible. And he reminds us, the culture's never going to get right. Our nation's never going to get right. Attitude toward authority until the church does first. So as followers of Jesus have to be the people that model. Do I like this or that or that person or that person? Irrelevant. If they're put there by God, I've got a responsibility to pray and submit. Fourth, speak up. So we identify the opposition, and then we work at dealing with our attitudes, and then we speak up. So I'm going to put my whistle on. Okay, this afternoon, lots of places around the country, there won't be any fans there, but uh, there are going to be two teams take the field in NFL games. This illustration comes from Tony Evans. It's not original with me, but I like it, so I want to share it. Uh, two teams take the field. They've got opposite goals. They're going opposite directions. It is chaotic. It is conflict from the start of the thing. Uh, in opposition. There's a third team on the field. Who's the third team? The officials. The officials are the third team. They operate very differently. They represent a higher authority. 
47th Street in New York City, the NFL offices. Doesn't matter where they are, every field they're on, their job is to represent that higher authority. And their job is to bring order to what otherwise would be chaotic. So their personal opinions, they have to adjust them. They have to be reoriented to a higher authority. And they are given a book. All their decisions and judgments are to be based on that book. How would you like it? I would like it just fine this afternoon against the Vikings if the referees took off their striped shirts and they put on Packer jerseys. can't happen because the answer to a higher authority they judge by a different book who are we the church is the officiating crew in the culture it's supposed to be we're the people with the book we're the people who answer to a higher authority but too often we don't speak up or we change books you know, something gets uncomfortable and we decide, well, let's shift from the book to our history or our personal experience or political posture or my individual perspective to make my decisions and judgments. And the warning is, no, God doesn't change books when it comes to civil authority. We dare not. So, um, Evan says, that's why every follower of Jesus needs to think kingdom first and has to then be Republican light or Democrat light. Here's why this matters, I believe. We need to start speaking up because our younger generations, we've talked a lot here about legacy and Titus 2 and older, those who have known Jesus for a longer time, pouring into those who are coming behind them on the path of faith. If it doesn't include how you respond and when you are to speak up, we're going to completely lose the teens and collegians because they've seen the ugliness, they've seen the ridiculousness, they've seen the bias, and it's gotten nowhere Decade after decade after decade, maybe they, uh, they, should they just chuck all of it? I think we need to speak up as believers. We need to blow the whistle and throw the flag. What do I mean by that? Give my, give me a, I'm going to give a couple of examples. When we stay quiet, we minimize, this is a comment from Kip, um, in the midst of the furor in our culture, don't minimize that the gospel really is the solution. And the quieter we are as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, the easier it is for everyone else to just leave the gospel out of the conversation. That's tragic. So here's an illustration. Uh, the most popular voices in the evangelical world right now the most popular voices on race and justice are pagans or syncretists. How can that be? It's because too many followers of Jesus aren't paying attention to the book and 30 minutes on Sunday morning isn't enough. Thank you for the reading guide on justice. Dive in this week. Too many believers either don't know enough or don't care enough to stick their neck out and say, penalty flag, wait a minute, that can't be what's best for people, our culture, our nation. 
It's time for us to critique from a biblical worldview based on biblical convictions our own position. No, don't start with, let me critique, uh, I'm red, let me critique the blue. No, critique your own position from a biblical perspective. So here's what I mean. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about has the credibility of the gospel been damaged over the last four years because Christians, have committed Christians, believe the book, have chosen to not say anything negative about President Trump. Lots been written and discussed about it. Credibility of the gospel hasn't been damaged because there weren't Christians four years ago, me included, and lots of others, who weren't willing to blow the whistle and say, the arrogance, the argumentativeness, the incivility is not biblical. It's wrong. Pride in any leader, I don't care where, is going to lead to a fall. That's biblical. I don't know exactly what should, if you want to discuss that, I'm happy to discuss it with you. I've read a lot and got my own conclusions about it. Uh, but I do know this. If there had been more believers blowing the whistle, throwing the flag, there would have been less damage to the credibility of the gospel compared to whatever it actually is now. Critiquing our own position. So I want to know where are the Christians who lean red? Where are the Christian voices calling for civility? Calling out pride and arrogance? I want to know where are the red Christian voices who are leading the way with suggestions and solutions to replace or reform a failed welfare state? The past 50 years have been unspeakably destructive to the black culture of our nation. Where are the red voices critiquing and saying, we have to do better and here's a suggestion. That's what's got to begin to happen. And I want to know where are the blue voices, the Christians who lean blue. We heard it a week ago. I, I haven't heard A. Maybe I haven't listened in the right spots, but I've been reading a lot. And listening to a lot. Where are the blue-leaning voices saying, gender reassignment for an eight-year-old is immoral. Period. End of discussion. Where are the voices? Where are the blue voices who are giving solutions, suggestions to address poverty, not just among blacks, but among Hispanics and whites, including in our community? See, we have to be the refs. We have to speak up because we're the only ones with a moral compass that doesn't shift with the current opinion polls. So we have to speak and critique and vote by the book. Last, look up. Would you turn to Isaiah 40? Isaiah chapter 40. Look up. Where's our focus supposed to be? So I had a great conversation with Dr. Smith uh, where he was saying, um, wonder what God's up to. Because if Biden wins, it means certain things. Wonder what God's up to in the middle of that. If Trump wins, again, it means certain things. I wonder what God is up to in the middle of that. See, look up. Who will rule? The right answer isn't Biden or Trump. 
Who will rule? God will. God is on his throne and there is no competition. The message of Isaiah chapter 40, 39 chapters worth, have been uh, judgment. Uh, the, the people of Judah and Israel have gone after idols. The idolatry has been horrible. God warned, 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 uh, chastised, uh, rebuked, uh, told them, I'm going to have to judge you. Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. By the time we get to chapter 40, now the people are off in exile. Their nation, their cities, they've been destroyed. Their relatives have been killed. They've been carted off into exile. It is desperate. Has God abandoned us? Are the sins of our past so bad that he's washed his hands of us? That same question's being asked in our nation right now. Have the sins of our past been so disqualifying that there's no hope for our future? That's Isaiah 40. And the answer, when Isaiah speaks for God here now, he says, uh, look up. Here is your God, verse 9. Uh, announce it to all the people who are from all the various towns in Judah. You're off in exile now. Uh, here is your God. And he begins to describe him. And the rest of the chapter is an amazing look at who God is. Uh, verse 10. Uh, see, he comes with power and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. He is the all-powerful shepherd king. That's who he is. Uh, how do we know how great he is? Take a look at creation, verse 12. Who advised him on how to handle creation? Nobody. He's all-powerful on the throne. Verses 13 and 14. Well, who coaches God? Nobody. Look up to your God. Verses uh, 15 and 17 get at the whole issue of geopolitical nations. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They regard it as dust on the scales. You can't even count them. Before, he, before him, verse 17, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. And I hope you've learned your lesson, verses 18, 19, and 20. You now can reflect back and see how stupid it was to hire a goldsmith or a silversmith or a craftsman and get them to make a little God for you. How'd that work out for you? It didn't. Turn away instead and recognize there's one throne and it's occupied. And he is on it. And we get to the politics when we get to verse 23 and 24. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. And that applied to Judah, who had some good kings and some bad ones, and to Israel, who had nothing but bad kings. They pop up, they wither away, he blows them away. He is on his throne. And every earthly empire, earthly ruler, it comes and goes, and he stays on his throne. So the people wondered, end of the chapter, verse 27. Each section starts with some questions. Well, wait a minute. Uh, see, they're complaining. 
And they're saying, my way is hidden from the Lord. My, my cause is disregarded by God. He doesn't even see us. He doesn't care about us anymore. Uh, what do we do now? Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. What a note of hope to these people who are off in exile. Is there any recovering from our past sins? You bet. Does God see and know what we're going through? You bet. Have our past sins of idolatry permanently disqualified us? No. Wait on him. And that word wait, those who wait on the Lord, let's trust him. 